Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 467. Um, this episode, I'm going to endeavor into something I, I wrote um, a few years back, maybe 10, 12 years ago, when I really got heavily interested in uh, architectural preservation. Um, so we're going to start a, a four-part series uh, on post and beam framing. I'm going to call it The Wealth of Wood. Newcomers to America must have been astounded by the magnificent forest and crowded the settlements. Back in overpopulated, land-stripped Europe, the countryside had long since contributed the last of her virgin trees. In some countries, it was a hanging offense to level any remaining tree without permission. But in the colonies, virgin timber grew in great quantities. These giants reached heights that the lower branches received little of the light that filtered down to the canopy of leaves. Losing out, branches fell off the trunk before they were fully developed. The result was a tall, straight, limb-free, and often not free trunk that reached for the sun. The most spectacular tree was the white pine. The timber soared to 150 feet and up to 200 feet. Although a softer wood, the heartwood of these ancient pines was far more hard and dense than their smaller relatives of today. The English Navy claimed that any white pine two feet or more in diameter for mast stock and had the trunk blazed with the king's arrow. The colonists well on their way to becoming independent spirits in the new land, were not particularly troubled about using some of the huge timber for their own purposes. At any rate, wood in such plenty was the favorite building material in America. There are other alternatives for this new land. It was also rich with stone and clay for bricks. In all the colonies, such masonry made strong created durable foundations and chimneys. The structure. Beneath the clabbered and shingle skin of every wooden homestead was a rugged wooden skeleton. Great square timbers made up the perpendicular post and horizontal beams. They were forever joined by wooden tree nails or trunnels. Some of these framing members ran as large as 10 inches by 10 inches on cross-section, somewhat of overkill for a house structure. To keep the posts square and the beams and braces locked between them, no doubt about it, the colonial homestead was built to endure the ages. The builder's choice for timber framing was certainly the great white oak. The majority of early American colonies were English, and they were very well acquainted with its badly depleted relative, the English or Norman oak. They found the native oak all they could wish, for it was very workable, strong, hard, and heavy, and held enough tannic acid in its fibers to discourage a number of fungi and insects. The tree was found in plenty throughout the eastern part of the colonies. Some additional trees found their way into timber framing. Red oak, works well, lighter than white oak. 
It's hard to season and does not resist decay. Chestnut works very nicely. Fairly soft, light, straight-grained, resists moisture, and fine for damp spots such as sills. Now lost completely to the Asian chestnut blight. White oak. Easily worked, hard, strong, heavy, and resists decay. Red maple. Hard, heavy, strong, hard to work, and twists on drying. Hemlock. Works well, brittle, splintery, and knotty. White pine. Works well, seasons nicely, light and knotty. From round logs to square. There was never time to retire the felling axe. Its one last contribution to the homestead framework was the scoring cuts to be made on the outside of chalk lines. The axeman stood on the log as he did when bucking, used the same swing and angled cut to bite through the wood fibers. No chips were ever removed. Only a series of inch-deep slashes were made. Then the broad axe would slice off the unwanted chunks between the scoring cuts. Chances are that more must be removed before hewing to the chalk line. Once again, the axe cut into the partially flattened sides, perhaps two to four cuts every six inches or so. That would penetrate to the chalk line and the excess wood beyond it. Those final score marks made centuries later are obvious in today in America's enduring colonial buildings. Once two parallel faces were hewn, the timber was rolled until it rested on one of them. No need for a timber dog here. The work would stay put while resting on the flat surface. Two parallel chalk lines were again snapped. The distance between being them the same as the distance between the two finished sides. Once again, the felling axe scored the unwanted wood, and again, the broad axe sliced off the chunks between the, the scored marks. The squared post or beam was rough hewn into shape, and that was good enough, unless the timber would be exposed in the interior of the homestead. Perhaps, two. There were a few humps left from the hewing that wanted skinning. Then it was a good job for the adze, another tool that resembles the axe, but was really a long-handled chisel that could smooth any wooden face in the hands of a skilled craftsman to perfection. The timber carrier. Now that the logs have been square-hewed, freed of unwanted wood and perhaps tidied up with the adze, there was the matter of hauling their considerable numbers off to the building site. The scattering of chips and trim branches that lay on the forest floor would disintegrate and disappear, replaced by new seedlings. The common skidding sleds, or the two-wheeled cart, just wouldn't do it. The fresh timbers were smooth and clean, and no right-thinking colonial carpenter would employ his mortise and tenon tools on wood encrusted with mud and sand. The log draggers were useful for moving logs only for short distances. The snow blankets that covered the more northerly colonies made the logging sled quite a natural. 
Even in the warm months, or in the snow-free southern areas, the wooden runners slid reasonably well over the forest floor. These were for short hauls between the felling site and the skidway, and nearby collection yard. The forward end of each unworked log was chained to the cross piece spanning the runners. The back ends were dragged beyond and that just wouldn't do for any freshly square hewn timber. Any ground in mud, sand, or like debris would not have looked unkindly when the mortise and tenon work had begun. Here was the answer to the problem. It made no sense to go devil and the yarding sled into the two-purpose sled. A small version about four feet in width could be snaked around the trees with a pair of horses or oxen. The low rig made for easy loading of the hewn timber from its log supports. And once on the two sled, the future post and beams never touched the ground. Wheeled carts and wagon. Like the go devil and the yard sleds, the log cart was useful for dragging raw logs, not clean, freshly hewn lumber from the forest. They saw service in the free south wherever the land surface was firm and level or gently rolling. Any abrupt decline made holding a load back a difficult chore and may mean a runaway cart. Hauling to the site. Colonial records make little or no mention of the loading of timber at the assembly or skidway yard. Therefore, the last hitch in the haul to the building site with the two sleds or the timber wagon is conjectural, but probably went something like this. The hewn timbers were moved down the parallel logs of the skidway with a ring dog or cast hook or log hook and crowbar. For longer, heavier hauls, the four-wheel wagon came into its own. Two to five horses would be needed, while six to ten oxen would bend their backs for wagons of coarse, dry, hard, and reasonably passable roads are a must. Horses or oxen, which one? The secret to hauling heavy timber was a slow and steady pace, and for this oxen had no equal. Horses were certainly more agile and faster, but tired sooner. Being more high-strung, they could be skittish when the going was difficult. They had to be draped in a relatively costly harness. Somewhat finicky appetites called for feeding three times daily. Not so for the oxen, for they were docile, even-tempered, and certainly strong enough to plod up steep slopes with little effort. A castrated bull facing hard labor as an ox may be little cheered by his newfound qualities. Their large hoofs could take the wagon through muck and mire where horses would soon bog down. Oxen were satisfied with a single meal of coarse feed and their yoke harness was easily shaped from the wood at hand. Further, only one teamster was needed to manage a team of eight to ten oxen, while no more than four to five horses could be worked by more than one person. It was little wonder that the colonist held a high regard for these great lumbering beasts. Greg Perry, 
the Historic Preservationist signing out, uh, part one. Thanks for listening.